Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the issues surrounding COVID-19 and the flu and successful treatment of both. To discuss this are Dr. Sandy Schneider with the American College of Emergency Physicians and Dr. Edward Michelson with Texas Tech University Health Services Center. Thank you both for being with me. Dr. Schneider, I'd like to start with you. Flu and COVID-19 share many characteristics symptomatically. How will healthcare professionals deal with this added challenge? And what advice do you have for people who feel the onset of symptoms, but may not be sure whether it's the flu or COVID-19? Well, thank you, Nadia. You are absolutely correct. Uh, The flu and COVID-19 do look an awful lot alike. Their symptoms really overlap. About the only thing that's different is COVID-19 can, in some patients, cause a loss of smell or loss of taste, uh, but that's not uh, enough to really make a definitive diagnosis. Further, I think, and more worrisome, is that flu and COVID can occur in the same patient, uh, and so they can have both infections. So from an emergency physician point of view, uh, what we're probably going to need to do is rely a lot on testing. And here again, we do have some problems. First off, most emergency physicians order a test, but they really don't know what test they're ordering. They're just ordering whatever the lab happens to have. That's usually okay for us. Um, We don't really get into the details of how they do the test. But this time, it's uh, with COVID and flu, it's going to be important to know what tests they're doing, particularly for COVID. We know that the flu test, the influenza test, um, is very good at picking up patients who have influenza, but it's not very good at picking up all of them. In other words, there are a lot of people who are false uh, positive or false negatives. They actually have influenza but the test comes back negative. That can be for a variety of reasons, everything from poor sample acquisition to just the test itself. The same is true for COVID, and many of the tests we do, again, if it's positive, the likelihood that there's COVID around in that patient is absolutely, or almost absolutely true. But if the test is negative, it really doesn't rule out a COVID infection. So what should people do? Well, if the person uh, gets symptoms of influenza or COVID, uh, once influenza is in their community, they really should talk to their doctor as soon as possible. There is a treatment for influenza, an antiviral treatment that can be started within 48 hours of the person getting symptomatic. And that's probably a very reasonable thing to do while you're waiting for testing or waiting to see what's going to happen with the disease. It's not a totally benign uh, treatment, but it doesn't cause any real serious side effects. In addition, for the emergency physician, anybody who comes in who has, looks like they have the flu uh, and is high risk or is going to be admitted should be started on an antiviral, regardless of the duration of the disease within obvious reason, you know, within the next several days. So it's going to be a very challenging time because we really don't know exactly what the patients are going to have. And in some ways we're going to be flying blind, but at least we have a good antiviral for influenza. 
But I think we'll talk a little bit more later about vaccination and the role that that will play because that's going to be critical this year. Thank you, Dr. Schneider. Dr. Michelson, over to you now. Who has the highest risk for both illnesses and how long after exposure do we see symptoms in each? Particularly this year, our first year dealing with COVID-19 and coming into the flu season in the Northern Hemisphere. The groups at highest risk overlap somewhat and they're also somewhat different. Uh, Typically, influenza poses the highest risk at the extremes of age. So those 65 and older are at greater risk of complications from influenza and the very young. Uh, Some say children under five, some say children under two, and probably the largest number of patients in the pediatric population who are hospitalized and who possibly could die are in that uh, maybe six month and younger age range. This is a little bit different than COVID-19, which seems to have spared most children, fortunately. So that's one of the big differences between influenza and and COVID-19 to date is the uh, somewhat sparing of of children from the COVID-19. In addition, all groups of patients who are immunocompromised, either from chronic diseases such as untreated HIV, patients who are on chemotherapy, on chronic steroids, or have other reasons to have a depressed immune system, uh, would be at risk for both diseases. As far as the timing, how soon after exposure until illness? Again, uh, somewhat similar, uh, maybe a little bit different for influenza. I believe most influenza patients will become symptomatic in the 72 to 96 hour range after exposure. For COVID-19, we're seeing exposures five to seven days earlier uh, resulting in infection. Although because of asymptomatic carriers, sometimes this time frame is less clear. Thank you for those insights, Dr. Michelson. Since many of us are already practicing social distancing and wearing masks, Dr. Schneider, do you expect the spread of the flu to be lower this season? I'm certainly hopeful it will be. Uh, Those things that we're doing, the social distancing, the wearing of masks, the washing hands frequently, are the very things that will limit the transmission of influenza as well as COVID-19. On the other hand, um, we really don't know how severe the influenza season will be. So one of the more important things to do, in addition to all of those things, always wearing a mask, Uh, when you're out um, with other people, always keeping social distancing, always washing your hands. The most important thing is going to be to get a vaccination, and that will be the best way that we can reduce the influenza season, or the impact of the influenza season. I absolutely agree that we must take all precautions possible to limit the number of influenza cases this season in the Northern Hemisphere because we know we'll still be taking care of COVID-19 as well. And the goal here is to not only keep people healthy, but to avoid overwhelming the healthcare system. If we look back over our experience the last six or eight months in the United States with COVID-19, we can vividly recall some of those pictures from the New York, uh, greater New York City area uh, when they were simply overwhelmed with patients And we had video of patients lining the hallways 
and numbers of patients exceeding capacity at hospitals, which is really a scary thing. None of us want to see that happen again this fall. There's been some interesting recent discussion about the Southern Hemisphere, which now has about completed their influenza season. And it's been good news. Uh, the numbers of cases of influenza in Southern countries, including Brazil, Chile, experiences in South America, as well as in Argentina, have showed a dramatic decline in the numbers of influenza cases and the numbers hospitalized. And I think those are the result of the fact that those countries are still taking protective action against COVID-19. So hopefully if we do the right things with COVID-19, hopefully we can replicate the experiences that the Southern Hemisphere has just gone through in our upcoming season. There is some concern in some quarters that perhaps the number of testing that's going on for influenza has been lower in the uh, Southern Hemisphere. I do think personally that it probably will be lower this year, uh, but we again need to be very diligent this winter. Uh, I think unlike uh, winters before even. Very practical advice, Dr. Schneider, and excellent points from both of you. Thank you. Dr. Michelson, how are hospitals and medical facilities equipping themselves to deal with the influx of potential flu patients, as they do every year, on top of the COVID-19 cases that are already putting pressure on their capacity? I understand that your own facility has come up with unique ways to handle this challenge. Once again, we want to avoid overwhelming the healthcare system to make sure that we don't run out of resources and we don't run out of the ability to provide care for all of the patients who present. Uh, I think the first thing that we're going to do relates to your prior question and Dr. Schneider's answer regarding the importance of getting flu shots. Uh, our hospital is already making influenza immunizations available to our staff and we're seeking to get 100% participation by all of our staff members uh, in getting the flu shot. This extends beyond just the first line providers, uh, particularly the support personnel who work in the cafeteria, who uh, clean the rooms and keep our hospital running, uh, our maintenance personnel, really everybody needs to get the flu shot so they can stay well and come to work and, and support the mission. One of the big challenges early on in COVID was PPE and making sure we had adequate PPE. Now in many parts of the country, as our number of cases of COVID-19 decline, we're working very diligently to try to build back up our supplies of masks, gowns, gloves, other protective gear that we need to take care of both COVID-19 patients as well as influenza patients. Particularly gloves have been in short supply and we've looked for ways to use non-medical gloves for those personnel who are not doing patient care, but which will still protect their hands. And we're trying very hard to build up a robust supply before we start seeing what might be an increase in numbers of both uh, patients. We're also trying to stock up on our test supplies. Uh, we wanna have adequate numbers of influenza tests and here uh, at UMC, we're using the BioFire device, which has a respiratory panel that tests for both COVID-19 and influenza, as well as a number of other respiratory uh, pathogens. 
So those stocks of supplies are still limited. Hospitals are still being limited in the numbers they can order. And we're doing everything we can to try to build up our supply so that if the numbers of patients increases, we won't run out of testing ability. We're also maintaining our screening protocols at the doors uh, because those protocols would be applicable to influenza as well as COVID patients. And we're also limiting still the number of visitors that can enter the hospital because we think visitors who are not vaccinated uh, and maybe coming to visit patients may be bringing uh, the virus in with them. And so we wanna minimize the number of opportunities for both COVID and influenza to uh, enter the hospital. We set up a series of fairly elaborate tents to divert patients from the front door for workup for COVID-19. Lately, we've not been using those tents because our numbers of COVID-19 patients have declined. However, we are not decommissioning them. We're keeping them available and ready to go so that as the season ramps up, we have the ability to again start using them for screening of any respiratory patient, which might include both groups of patients. And finally, we're maintaining our increased supply of negative airflow rooms and our ability to cohort patients who might have respiratory infections away from those patients who do not appear to have those infections. So although our utilization of our temporary COVID ICU is down, we're keeping it available and operational in case it's needed during the influenza season. I think it's important for the public to understand that the emergency departments are very safe places now. They may look very different. People will be walking around with masks and gowns and uh, look actually quite different than the emergency department you saw maybe six uh, months or a year ago. But they are safe places and places where people can uh, be treated safely. But the other thing I wanted to mention, and I would like to get Dr. Michelson's view on this, is the importance of getting the inpatients quickly out of the emergency department. Every year when we have influenza, we tend to get a backup of inpatients in the emergency department. And I know where I work in Fort Worth, uh, the hospital administrator is extremely receptive and understands the importance of getting the inpatients out of the emergency department. And I believe, Dr. Michelson, in your facility, you also have another, an administrator who is also uh, pretty receptive to this problem. Well, Dr. Schneider, that's an incredibly important issue, <clears throat> not just during flu season and, and COVID uh, season, but really 365 days a year. It's been very well established that uh, prolonged times of boarding in the emergency department are detrimental not only to those patients who are delayed getting up to the inpatient floor, but really to the operation of the department and to those patients in the waiting room who are delayed getting their definitive care. So every year, all hospitals see an increase in patients during their influenza season. And that's the time of year that the emergency department really can become stressed or really experience overcapacity situations. So I completely agree that boarding is a major problem for the emergency department affecting all other metrics and something that all hospitals need to stay focused on. We do not allow any hallway patients in our emergency department. And particularly when you have patients who might be infectious to others, uh, the hallway is the last place you want them to be. 
So I urge everyone listening to uh, advocate for the emergency department, advocate with hospital administration of the importance of looking at total hospital throughput and making inpatient beds available as quickly as possible when a patient admission decision is made in the emergency department. And since this is going to be listened to by a lot of infectious disease uh, physicians, one thing I would also urge is for them to look at the emergency department as they would look at the rest of the hospital and help the emergency department institute infection control measures in the ED that are appropriate for those patients. Such important and practical points. Thank you, doctors. Dr. Schneider, will access to flu vaccinations be more challenging this year due to school and clinic closures, social distancing limits on the number of patients who can line up for the vaccine? Will these make a difference in how easily people can obtain the flu shot? I certainly hope not, and I don't think it will. The experience may be a little different. You may be asked to stand six feet away from the person in line um, ahead of you, Um, But I urge everyone not to let the concerns around social distancing, the concerns around uh, needing to wear a mask, to keep you from taking the time to go get a flu shot. Flu shots will be available in almost every doctor's office. They will be available in almost every pharmacy. And I heard uh, recently that basically almost everyone lives within a reasonable distance from a pharmacy. So getting to a pharmacy would be fine. I know that people may be worried, uh, particularly if they're high risk or elderly, but these are the very people that need the flu shot. So I would urge them to think about times when uh, they might think that the pharmacy would be less crowded. So a weekday, uh, early in the morning, someone even suggested going there during a football game. The idea is, you know, go when you don't think it's going to be very crowded, but the most important thing is to go. Uh, If your doctor has it, arrange to go to your doctor's office, get the vaccine. And again, doctor's offices are very safe these days. They've taken all of the precautions. So it will be a little different. It might be a little more sort of thought provoking. You might have to plan for it, but it will be one of the most essential things that people can do this year. And Dr. Schneider, particularly those with underlying health conditions, and the elderly, correct? Absolutely. But I urge everyone to do it because you're not only getting the flu shot for yourself, you're getting the flu shot for your children, you're getting your flu shot for your parents and your grandparents so that you don't get the flu and give it to them. You're getting the flu shot so all of those people around you will also be safer. In the elderly population, for example, we know that the flu shot, although it's effective, is not as effective as younger people So if the elderly person, if you go to visit your grandparents or your parents and they're elderly, it's really important that you have your flu shot so you don't give them the flu. Thank you for that advice, Dr. Schneider. Dr. Michelson, I thought we could end with your thoughts on why it's so important for everyone to get a flu shot, dovetailing on what Dr. Schneider just highlighted. Besides for individual protection and for family protection, uh, should you get the flu and expose someone who's more vulnerable than yourself, I think society-wise, we should protect each other and try to preserve our capacity within the healthcare system this year by really limiting the number of influenza cases that result not only in people coming to the hospital and using hospital beds and resources, but also being off of work. I mean, we're still dealing with the economic 
results of partial shutdown and in some cases full shutdown due to COVID-19. And every year, influenza also has a significant economic impact on the country. There are many important people in society who do jobs that affect others. And it's important for all of us to be able to stay healthy, not only to stay out of the hospital, but also to be able to do our jobs, to be able to uh, teach, to go to work, to keep the supply system functioning. And we all want to preserve our incomes. So this year in particular with COVID-19 on top of influenza, it'll be very important for everyone to get their flu shot and to realize that the flu shot is safe and pretty effective. There is a lot of people who tell me uh, they don't get their flu shot because they've never had the flu or they don't get their flu shot because once upon a time when they got it, several days later, they felt like they had the flu. The flu shot does not cause the flu. Uh, it may cause your arm to be a little bit of a, a little bit sore. You might have a little bit of, eh, I don't, don't quite feel up to total par. But last year was actually a lot of fun because for me, because two people who had bragged to me that they never ever got the flu and therefore they would never ever get a flu shot. Both of them got the flu and they're both going to be in line for the flu shot this year because they realized that they were just lucky all those years. It's not that they were immune to the flu, they were just lucky. And so I'm glad that those two guys will be in line. And I hope that a lot of other people will be in line because this year among all the years is the year you need to get a flu shot. At this time, I'd like to thank Dr. Schneider and Michelson for their time, participation and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.